You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, or wherever you are in the world. Good morning, good evening, good night. Uh, welcome to uh, the Medical and Health Seminar, Health Humanities Seminar of Trinity College Dublin, held in the hub for the humanities, the Long Room Hub. My name is Professor Des O'Neill. I'm a geriatrician. And along with uh, Professor Mary Cosgrove in German, we co-chair Medical and Health Humanities. And this is part of the longest running series of Medical and Health Humanities seminars in, in any Irish higher educational institution. We're particularly pleased today to have uh, with us Dr. Orla Fitzpatrick around an area that's of particular interest, the iconography of medicine and particularly uh, photographic students, studios and the medical press of the 1860s, particularly before the advent of photomechanical reproduction. And this is uh, surely to be fascinating. Delighted to welcome Dr. Orla Fitzpatrick. Uh, she's a research fellow working with Professor Eve Patton, Trinity College Dublin and Garrett Carr, Queen's University, Belfast on a HEA Shared Island North South Research Programme project, Ireland's Border Culture, Literature, Arts and Policy. Uh, she attained her PhD from Ulster University on the topic of modernity, modernism and Irish photography, 1922 to 1949. Her book, Lost Ireland, was published by Rizzoli and Pavilion in 2021, and she curated imaging conflict photographs in the revolutionary Ireland, here Ireland, a major exhibition at the National Museum of Ireland, which opened in October 2022. So over to Dr. Fitzpatrick, and thank you. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, thanks very much for that kind introduction and for asking me along. Um, I'm not a medical person, so please bear with me for any mispronunciations. Um, I also want to say that um, some of these images might be quite disturbing as well. Um, so I'll get started. Okay, so uh, today I'm going to talk about the use of photography to illustrate case studies um, in an Irish medical journal in the 1860s. Um, so the Dublin Journal of Medical Science was published from 1832 with slight title variations. So during the period under consideration, it was also known as the Dublin Quarterly Journal of Medis Medical Science. And it was edit edited in this decade by John Moore Nelligan, George Hugh Kidd and James Little and included papers from eminent practitioners outlining their latest findings. So 1922 is known as the Irish Journal of Medical Science, and it's still in publication today. So the use of photography in medical publications remained quite novel in the 1860s and was commented upon in the review section of the Dublin Journal. Um, so the list of books received in August 1867 highlighted this title, a page from which you can see here, and it was called On Diseases of the Skin by Alexander John Balamo Squire. And it's illustrated in colour photographs and it says from life. And this plate here, um, it's tinted and it's inserted into the pages. So Squire was a surgeon to the West London dispensary for disease of the skin. And according to Gershwin's uh, Inculaba of um, British photographic literature, this book, this atlas is one of the first medical books published with photographs, and it's probably the first dermatological volume so illustrated. 
So really in the 1860s, it wasn't possible to photomechanically reproduce photographic images. If a photograph was to be included in a publication alongside text, an individual print had to be pasted or tipped into the publication. And this image shows an actual photographic print, which was pasted into the Dublin Journal for 1867. And it depicts a five-year-old boy called Pat Mulva from Virginia County Cavan after an operation to rectify a single hair lip. And this after photograph was taken whilst the scar was still new. And according to the surgeon, Morris Henry Collis of the Mead Hospital, this was intentional as he wished the line of the scar to be visible for instructional purposes. Um, the production and insertion of individual prints uh, was very expensive and time consuming. So therefore, we don't see that much of it in the pages of the Dublin Journal. So to get an impression of what this meant was, if you, the journal had 500 issues, you would have to print 500 prints and stick them in. So the other method of, include, of reproducing photographs was by, by woodblock or lithography. So the lithograph was on stone. It's more detailed than the woodblock. And so most of the examples I will show today are, are using this method. So lithographs allow for a more grayscale and shading and thus provide a more realistic reproduction of the photograph than a woodblock. So really it looks more like a photograph. All of these processes until the 1890s are one removed from the photograph. And I think during the, in the Dublin Journal, you can sometimes have all of these processes in the same issue. You know, it's not standardized. So this is a graph that I compiled several years ago, and it shows the photographic studios of Dublin in the city centre, revealing a boom in growth in the 1860s, which coincides with the introduction of the carte de visite process. So the increase in the number of photographically derived images in the Dublin Journal mirrors this trajectory. So the more studios you have, the more photographs you're seeing in the D Dublin Journal. Um, so the CDB process was invented by Frederick Scott Archer, and it speeded up and reduced the costs of producing paper prints. Um, the portrait studios were mainly situated along the main thoroughfares of the city, stretching from O'Connell Street, then Saxel Street, along Westmoreland Street and Grafton Street. Um, and this was known as the photographic mile. Um, so the photo studios used by the Dublin surgeons include that of Forster of Westmoreland Street. And according to an 1868 advertisement, it's, he was situated on the drawing room floor of 30 Westmoreland Street. The drawing room floor was the second floor, and this was often where studios were at a higher level to get more light. Access was through the front door of the new medical hall. Foster entered into several partnerships. In March 1862, he was in business with A.J. Scott. However, by February the 16th, 1864, he was working alongside T.F. Haskell. So this partnership was in turn dissolved in 18, later 1864 when Haskell set up his own studio at 118 Grafton Street. So I think this is quite typical of the fast-moving photographic world at the time. There was a boom in photo studios and there were these many partnerships, short-lived businesses. So other studios used by Irish doctors included Lawrence, who had branches on both Sackville Street and Grafton Street, Werner's of Clare Street and James Robinson, also of Grafton Street. So none of these studios advertised that they specialised in medical or scientific photography. And the collaborations were often based on, obviously, these individual relationships between these companies and the surgeons. 
The hospitals mentioned in the articles, I think, were mainly city centre and close to the studios. I think this facilitated transfer of patients for these often repeated photographic sessions. So even though these portraits served clinical functions, the inclusion of particulars as to occupation, home address and the demeanour of each person each patient provides for the social historian, I think a glimpse of lives that would otherwise remain unknown to subsequent generations. On some occasions, patients are anonymized, whilst in others, full names are given. Some are referred to only by their initials. So this pair of men were photographed in the same Dublin studio in order to demonstrate the advantages of a particular type of amputation. Both were patients at the Richmond Hospital when they were operated upon by William Stokes who described the progression of their illnesses. Um, so we see John M was aged 23 and a draper. He suffered from necrosis of the upper third of the tibia, whilst Michael W was aged 28, an ironmonger. He had multiple abscesses over his knee, which could not be healed, and then he had to have the amputation. So I think what's strange about these photographs is they retain many of the tropes of studio photography um, which attempted to reenact middle or upper class drawing rooms. So therefore, we see patients sitting in its pillars and paper mache props, and often with bucolic backdrops. So I think the resultant images are um, a strange mixture of the domestic and the clinical. So the exchange of photographs between medical practitioners is mentioned frequently uh, in the 1860s in the Dublin Journal. So sending photographs uh, via the postal system facilitated comparison from a distance. For example, in 1866, the Dublin surgeon Henry Gray Crawley and Thomas P. Teal exchanged photographs of amputations they had undertaken. The following letter was sent from Teal in Leeds to Dublin on the 16th of July, 1866. And this is a quote from the letter. My dear sir, many thanks for your kindness in sending me the photographs were excellent stump. I have given directions for it being placed in the photographic album of our new school of medicine. It is very gratifying for me to find the rectangular flat amputation most successfully practiced by yourself and other surgeons in Dublin. The stumps do not deteriorate, but on the contrary, improve by age. So Crowley's photographs were taken in Lawrence Studio and reproduced by Foster & Co., the company located at 2 Crow Street and also at Temple Bar. And he singled out an employee for a particular phrase, and he quotes, uh, and I, I quote, I had a photograph taken in June 1868 by Lawrence, from which the accompanying lithograph has been executed excellently by her, Thomason. And this also gives us a unique insight into who was working in the studios. Often these, these individuals who are very skilled are not named. Um, so there's many layers to what these case studies reveal. So the case studies which these photographs illustrate also provide a glimpse of the working lives of the poorer sections of society and how these occupations impacted upon their health. William McCormick, surgeon of the Belfast Hospital and vice president of the Ulster Medical Society, in a section of the journal entitled Reports from Hospital Cases, outlined five incidents of workplace accidents which occurred mainly in mills. We often see the use of the word beautiful with regard to the images within the pages of the journal. And this is what McCormick says. I thought it desirable yet further to illustrate the results by lithographs copied from photographs. The, the plates have been faithfully and beautifully executed. Also, McCormick's cases reveal the extent of child labour during the period 
For example, he refer, refers to Mary Jane Waterson, and she's pictured here, whom he describes as follow, and I quote, an interesting child of 10 years of age was admitted to hospital under my care, May 21st, 1866. She was employed in one of the mills on full time, contrary to the Act of Parliament. Whilst she was engaged on the morning of the 21st, cleaning a spinning frame, her left hand was caught between the cog wheels at the end of the machine. Accidents caused by these machines are very frequent. And as may be imagined, any portion of the hand which passes passes between them must be irretrievably injured. So this slide shows that girl post-operation engaged in the act of knitting, which McCormick noted she does with rapidity and ease. A photographer was, a photographer was also employed by Morris Henry Collis, surgeon to the Mead Hospital and County Dublin Infirmary, to record the outcome of the removal of enormous ossified enchondroma, I think that's how you pronounce it, a type of benign non-cancerous tumour from the face of this man in his 50s. Success stories or aftershots have a long history within medical photography and an essay by Susan Sidalukas called Before and After the Aesthetic as Evidence in 19th Century Medical Photography um, provides a great overview of this practice. So Collis does not name the man but refers to him as being a well-known well known in the city of Dublin. Indeed, he was famous enough to ensure, and this is what Collis says, all things being arranged, the operation was performed on the 7th of February in the presence of a large concourse of students and surgeons. This was due not so much to the severity of the expected operation as to the personal popularity of the patient who is extensively known and highly respected as a citizen within Dublin. Chloroform was administered throughout by Professor McNamara, and during the long and tedious operation, the patient only once became for an instant partially conscious. So Collis does not name who this famous person is. If anybody has any ideas, I would welcome them. Um, for poorer members of society, the measure of success was often whether or not the patient was able to resume their previous employment. One such interesting case is that of Jane Goodwin, age 24 years of age, single, a milliner by occupation, who was admitted to Mercer Hospital Dublin in March 1865. She had an ovarian tumour of enormous size, and the extent of the growth was such that she was confined to bed for three months prior to admission. This was so large, she quite literally couldn't stand up. And during this period, she felt, and I quote, indescribable sensations of weakness, as if she were dying any time. On the date mentioned, she was admitted to hospital and a more careworn, dying, wretched-looking creature was never the recipient of its mercy. The surgeon, the unfortunately named Mr. Butcher, goes on to describe the operation which removed the tumour and her subsequent full recovery, noting that she returned to work and has largely been enabled to accept the management of her special department in a large department store. So evidence of her health is provided by a carte de portrait of her taken by the Grafton Street Photograph Studio of James Robinson. So the conventional studio pose with its pillars and curtains is it's no way different from the thousands of such portraits taken in the city. So it's only with the accompanying letterpress and the context within which it is reproduced that it takes on this evidential and medical context. So he, the photographs were also described as beautiful in Mr. Butcher's reports of operative surgery, which appeared in the November 1860 issue of the Dublin Quarterly Journal. 
And he says, I had a photograph taken of the man by a talented young friend. And from the beautiful lithograph adorning these pages was traced and executed by the eminent engravers of the firm of Foster and Co. of this city. The stump is as in every way beautiful of proportions. So we have an aesthetic value on both the work that's undertaken, but also on the lithography and the photographs. So this, this weird or, you know, quite unusual mesh of an appreciation of both. So not everybody was as lucky as the previous um, woman. And several of the case studies include photographs of patients who were gravely ill and who subsequently died from their illnesses. Their discomfort at having their photographs taken can easily be imagined. A fatal and tragic case was that of a herdsman from County Kildare who was admitted to the Matter Hospital on the 20th of February, 1865. Pat Gary was a married man with three children aged 45 who had not been able to eat or work for months. He was seen by John Hughes, who diagnosed him with a disease of the kidneys, describing his appearance as follows, and I quote, he presented the most remarkable discoloration of the skin, so peculiar, so striking, that I had him photographed on the instant, and so identical with that described by Addison, that I, without hesitation, ventured on the diagnosis of superrenal disease. It appears that this could be done for Gary, but, and Hughes provides us with a rare description of this fraught photographic encounter. The accompanying portrait is the most faithful likeness of my patient and gives a perfect, rep perfect representation of the pigmentation of the skin. The photograph was made and painted from life by Mr. Werner, 15 Leinster Street, and lithographed with singular fidelity and skill by Mr. H. Connell. Our patient, as may be seen from the likeness, was not a little puzzled at his novel position and being somewhat reluctant to submit to the photographic process, we were compelled to have him taken without, without much exposure of the surface, but some of the parts best marked are uncovered. Pat Gary died several days after this photograph was taken and during this, his short stay at the hospital, he was in great distress and discomfort. As Hughes notes, as my patient's sojourn in the hospital was brief, and his disposition so fearful and nervous, few unconnected with the institution saw him. And those few medical friends who visited him with me were struck by the pigmentation of skin. Another such case was recorded again by Crawley of an encephalite tumour situated on the thir upper third of the left arm. The patient was a young man known in the notes as JMC, who was aged 25 years, the son of a farmer residing in Penniskillen. Crowley notes the following with regard to the patient's condition prior to death. Before the patient returned to the country, I had a coloured photograph taken, exhibiting the shoulder and his delicate appearance. The tumour funigated and bled twice. The haemorrhage was arrested on each occasion by the murated tincture of iron. About a week before his death, he suffered from retention of urine, requiring the use of a catheter. Subsequently, paraplegia and brain symptoms set in, and he died on the 27th of May, two months after I saw him, from exhaustion produced by these desperate complications. So Crowley also outlines the case of a 12-year-old boy who had an elbow injury as a result of a fall on ice in March 1867. The boy can now flex and extend his, forehand, his forearm on the arm, as well as pronate and supinate his hand. He can play cricket. He was photographed holding a bat in two positions before the wicket 
and with the bat raised to strike the ball. He can wheel a wheelbarrow and work. His general health is excellent. I exhibited him lately to the pupils at the hospital when they were assembled in the operation theatre to witness some operations. So, end quote there. And say, I suppose to know the language surrounding this exhibition of the patient, as Michel Foucault coined the phrase medical gaze to describe how, from the late 18th century, the trained eye of the doctor reduced, perhaps reduced patients to objectified medical problems, problems that only his training made visible and therefore soluble. Patients became the subject of knowledge as well as objects of scrutiny. So what was the patient experience like, experience like of having one's photograph taken? And this is mentioned quite often, and this is something that photo historians often try to get to, is what was it like to have your photograph taken? What agency did people have? And um, how do they feel about it? Um, so sometimes in the case studies, they reference the discomfort felt by the patients. For example, Dr. Haddon of Clannacilty, County Cork, referred to the case of Mary Kane, aged 50, the wife of a labourer, who was admitted to Clannacilty Warehouse Hospital on the 11th of February, 1869. And she was suffering from a tumour which necessitated the removal of the left upper maxilla. The patient recovered fully, however, hadn't noted her reluctance to be photographed. And he says, on April 9th, I have seen this patient today, two months after operation, and I am thankful to be able to say that there is not the slightest evidence of the return of this, the disease. Attempted to photograph her, but she was so very nervous about it that I could only get a very inferior negative. So there are many factors to take into account with regard to her reaction, not least the trauma of having that surgery undertaken in the absence of chloroform, this was mentioned in the case notes. She may have felt uncomfortable about her appearance and may also have found the process of having her photograph taken, maybe for the first time, to be daunting. So this is not the only incidence where the, the pages of the journal, in the pages of the journal, where the patient demonstrated resistance towards having her, their photograph taken. In December 1865, Hayden um, admitted a 35-year-old la labourer to the Matter Hospital. But taking, he had been injured while taking a heavy stone off the shoulders of a fellow tradesman and he had made a false step and stepped back. So his injury didn't heal and he was admitted to hospital. And Hayden states, in the interval, an attempt was made to have his photograph taken. To this man, convinced an inconquerable objection and the idea had to be abandoned. On the 27th of October, he complained of an overpowering sensation of drowsiness and shortly after afterwards died without struggle. So really, when you think of the actuality of this, this man is dying and the, his resistance to being photographed is perhaps quite natural. So I'm going to finish off with two rather elaborate photograph plates which were published in the journal in the late 1870s. And we do see this within the journal an increase in complexity and um, perhaps more time lag photographs where there are several photographic sessions. So I think they're complex both in terms of narrative and the posing and the setup. So the image shows the same patient twice. The photographs were taken four years apart as the surgeon wished to illustrate the way in which the man had healed. He was described as following in the accompanying text, and I quote, TM number 56, a pensioner aged 35. This man led an irregular life, but had married young and never had syphilis. 
The surgeon, Mr. E. Stamer O'Grady of Mercer's Hospital, gives an overview of the man's medical history, mentioning that TM had been stabbed by a comrade, had scars from cupping, had had pleurisy and several under other conditions, many of which were associated with his military service abroad. The man's arm was amputated by O'Grady due to a malignant growth, and his initial recovery was outlined, albeit with references to several incidents of delirium tremens induced by alcohol abuse. He states that TM died in another institution five years subsequent to the amputation, with cause of death given as malignant disease of the abdomen. So I think the clever use of mirrors facilitates the depiction of the man's recovered stump. O'Grady commissioned Robinson and Sons to take both photographs, which he felt showed the remarkable change in appearance of the shoulder that the stumps undergo after time and how superfluous portions have been subsumed. The details of this man's life would match to his face in both images, reveal the harshness of his existence. But O'Grady's commentary, I think, is quite revelatory or his expectations of those who had served in the British Army. I think that reference to syphilis and then also him being a pensioner so young, um, we really can't tease out what this man's life story was. We can only wonder what this photographic encounter was like. How, how was TM persuaded to pose on both occasions? As a sometime dress historian as well, these images are invaluable in showing how clothing was worn by certain classes. So in this instance, O'Grady's case notes paint a spare, I think, but very poignant picture of the life of this person who died before their 40th birthday. So this plate was also published alongside the, art, the same article, utilising the same methods to give a fuller view of the wounds. It shows a man whose, ampu or a man whose amputation occurred fo following a workplace accident during which his arm was severely burnt. Unlike TM depicted in the previous image, this man's outcome was more favourable and he was able to return to work. Also shown in this plate is an image of an 18-year-old woman who is described as a country farm servant. Her elbow had swollen in an irregular ovoid shape, which discharged large quantities of fetid pus. Prior to amputation, O'Grady tells us that the patient underwent two operations and that her arm was fixed in a splint which held it aloft. He goes on to describe her reactions as follows, and I quote, the violent and uncontrollable temperament of the patient too, in oft recurring hysterical paroxysms, could only with difficulty be restrained from deranging and even attempting to remove the apparatus. So neither operation was, a, was successful for this woman, and it was only after amputation that the patient was restored to health. So to, to conclude, one wonders what agency these patients had in these photographic encounters. This small survey has produced several examples of resistance to the process. Nevertheless, grateful patients also provided photographs demonstrating their good health, and some returned for repeated photographic se sessions. So scholarship on medical photography within the Irish context is not extensive. Pather Slattery's unpublished PhD, which he completed in TCD in the late 1980s, has a chapter dealing with med medicine and photography. And the American collector, Stanley Burns, um, has written briefly on the topic within the Irish context. And I think really these are a great source. Much remains to be researched 
both in terms of the interactions uh, between studios and institutions, uh, as well as the life story of these individuals um, and the biographies of the physicians and surgeons. Um, for me, these vivid photographic representations of patients make real and compelling and oftentimes, you know, disturbing pictures of lives of various classes of societies, society. We also see commentary as to the sometimes moral failings or the perceived intelligence of the patients. And these are quite a revelation as regards to them being woven in with the clinical history. Um, really such use of photography as well, I think it could be a great source of primary source for historians of print technology, food. There are much in the case studies as well of type of convalescent food and drinks that these patients were given, where they were purchased from, where they were these foodstuffs were bought from, as well as being a uh, great source for the history of employment, uh, health and medicine. So that's it. That's all I have to show you today. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks very much. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And it, I'm just going, it's really a, a, a neglected part of um, our approach in many ways. Um, and I suppose it's no coincidence that, you know, uh, Michel Foucault talks about the medical gaze. And here we are actually getting a, a reification in many ways of, of the medical gaze. Um, and I suppose what's, what, there's a couple of things that are absolutely fascinating. And I suppose one of them is, is the tension between aesthetics and whatever form you might think of trying to uh, objectify a, a medical condition. And I suppose you've neatly pointed out the, the origins of the plaster pillars and the curtains and the drapes. And I, I suppose you've also beautifully caught the extraordinary class gradient. Now, I mean, one of the amazing things about confidentiality, when you go back to the the, the early, the relatively recent past, you know, the turn of the last century, how the names of patients appeared in the journals. I mean, it's quite fascinating to look at um, the the death scenario of famous authors and being written in the BMJ in graphic in graphic detail. But here we see, uh, from what you're telling us in Ireland, the very occult uh, mystery of who the um, high-class social <laughs> person was. Um, and certainly that might be something we, 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 you never know. We might be able to tease out. And then the very, I mean, challenging photographs in a way, uh, the, one of the pictures in, in, in particular, uh, that of the man, what they call the suprarenal gland, we now call the adrenal gland. This man clearly had what we call Addison's disease. He had an Addison's crisis. And I mean, this is about as fulminant as you can see. But to see his shirt virtually ripped, as it seemed to be, uh, showed, you know, uh, a range of uh, approaches to, towards social class. Now, there might be some, just if I can say to those who are joining us online, please put into uh, questions or chat any comments or, or queries you uh, might have. Um, do do you, what potentially interests me is what uh, the, lith, the lithographer or engraver might add uh, to the, you know, the rather cold, I suppose, um, photographs in a sense. Did you get a sense of it? Did anything strike you in the difference between the lithography engravings and the photos as you looked over them? Well, I think the lithography is closer to the 
photographs than a wood block would be. And I can really only detect omissions and maybe simplifying backgrounds and that sort of thing. Um, the lithographers did have their own styles um, and people were able to... So it is, it is one removed from the photograph, but definitely is um, a difference. But I think you can really see, if you look at the earlier decades, where you see line drawings or lithography from paintings or lithography from drawings, there's a difference. They're not as realistic looking. Um, and with regard to the, the anonymity, sometimes the articles start off with initials and then they seem to have forgotten and the whole name is given by them. But this is, you know, this is invaluable when, when paired with um, death records and that, you know, which really, for the historian, you can really then get a fuller live picture to see what the person went on to do for those that were deemed to have full yeah. recovery. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that's been really interesting. Uh, it will be uh, a podcast and um, really like to thank Dr. Orla Fitzpatrick for uh, an absolutely fascinating um, um, view into, into early uh, medical photography. I think this is something that could potentially uh, be of big interest, I would think, within the kind of the Irish uh, medical and health humanities uh, arena. Um, so a big thank you. Thank you uh, to Shelby Zimmerman, our, our programme coordinator. And just to say that we'll have our holidays break now. And the next seminar is on the 25th of January, Thursday, 25th of January, one o'clock to two o'clock p.m. Uh, from Jakob Summerer on metaphor use in eating disorder memoirs. So I think this will be really interesting. And as a discussant, we'll aim to have a clinician with an interest uh, in eating disorders to provide a little bit of uh, multi-joint or interdisciplinary working. So thank you very much to all and see you on the 25th of January. I'd also like to mention briefly, for those who are Trinity staff or Trinity associated, is we are, uh, we will be circulating again our call for papers for staff, students and researchers within Trinity on medical and health humanities for a day on the 7th of March. All the best. Thank you very much.